Is audio okay? All good. Uh, welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. Uh, today we've got part two of my interview with Coleman Cowan, a trial lawyer from uh, practicing with the Farron. Is it Farron Law Firm? James Scott Farron. James Scott Farron. James Scott Farron. If you have a TV, you've probably heard of us. There you go. Practicing in Durham, North Carolina, uh, living in Raleigh. Uh, and when we left off uh, in the last episode, Coleman was talking about uh, the journey out of law for a time period to follow kind of a dream of being a writer and a journalist. And where we left him, it was kind of uh, in the beginning of, of trying to, to put some flesh on that dream uh, and starting to get a taste of the enjoyment of the work, the meaningfulness of the work. Um, and I think we left you, you may still have been, uh, in, in Atlanta working for the business journal and, and how did you, uh, how did it progress from there such you ended up kind of getting a whole new graduate degree and, and then where'd you go career wise from there? So, uh, I, when I was at business week and I realized this is what I want to do, uh, I decided, well, I better learn how to do it. Uh, so I applied to journalism schools, got into Columbia, uh, and, and went to New York, uh, and learned journalism in, uh, what became for me just the greatest city and, uh, a, a super fun place to live. And it's much like my experience of, with, do I want to be a lawyer? Do I not want to be a lawyer? You know, much like I, being a lawyer was the last thing I ever wanted to do growing up until I learned what it was all about. New York City was the last place I could ever envision <laughs> me or my family living until we actually did it. Yeah. And man, I loved it. And what a great experience. What a great place to go to journalism school and learn journalism, learn how to write and uh, then become a journalist. And we should mention that uh, at some point in time, while you're still in North Carolina, was it while you're still in North Carolina, you met the woman who had become your wife, right? And, right? and sort of invited her along, if I remember you saying, invited her along on this adventure. What was that like? Yeah, so it's a funny story that she still tells. Uh, she, we met, um, we met at Sunset Beach uh, just before I left my law practice to try to become a journalist. So the person that she met, that she fell in love with, and as we started dating and realizing that this could become serious, was a lawyer and, you know, as far as she knew, a, a happy lawyer. And stable. Um, <laughs> right, and, and stable. Um, and then deep into the relationship, I, you know, we had this conversation. I told her, hey, this is this crazy idea that I have, and I think this is what I'm no longer going to do, and this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and, uh, I think once she got over her initial shock, uh, you know, to her credit, she came along with me for the journey and, uh, it's been super exciting, but yeah, it, it was a, a little bit of a, um, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, pulling the rug out from under her. It came as a surprise, uh, but one that she, uh, fortunately for me, uh, rolled with, and, uh, we had a fantastic adventure, uh, together in New York and started raising a family there. Wow, was your your son born while you were there then in New York? Or yeah, he was. Uh, he was born in New York, and he is still uh, fond of saying that he is the one true New Yorker in the family. And he's <laughs> absolutely right. My wife is well, from Eastern North Carolina. I can relate. I have one of those. Uh, my twenty three year old uh, who lives there and has lived in the city for five years now. Uh, the first time we went on a visit, which I think was two thousand and fourteen, maybe beginning two thousand fifteen. 
she was walking around like she belonged there, like on that very first visit. It was like, this is my people. This is my place. And uh, sure enough, she went back there. And some people just absolutely vibe with that city and and really love it. And there's obviously lots of great stuff going on. Uh, so you were at Columbia and then you're basically doing the whole finishing your graduate degree and looking for work again, which you had done before coming out of law school. What was it like this time? Was it different? Were you looking for different things and kind of where, where did it take you? Yeah. So here I am at the, uh, the, the uh, forever young age of 37, uh, <laughs> graduating from graduate school again and looking for a job in journalism in uh, the mid 2000s as newspapers were dying and print publications were dying and journalism oh. jobs and especially good journalism jobs were becoming more and more scarce. Uh, the deal I made with Angie was we're going to go, let's go to New York, uh, Columbia, the graduate school program there is a year. Uh, let's go for a year and see what happens and see where we go from there. You know, maybe we stay, maybe we go somewhere else, maybe we come back to North Carolina, but let's just see. Uh, so, I go to journalism school for a year. We get married uh, the, the summer after I graduate from journalism school. Um, I work for the summer at Business Week magazine in New York, but that's just a temporary position. And, you know, Chris, I'll tell you that business journalism, as important as it is, is not my passion. Um, it yeah. was a, a good way to learn, but, but that's just not me. So I knew that I wouldn't stay there. Uh, yeah. we got married, uh, went on our honeymoon, uh, didn't have a job, but we decided we wanted to stay in New York, which meant when I came back, we had a New York city apartment with New York city rent and Ooh. I didn't have a job. Oh my gosh. Um, amazingly though. And this is just, it's so funny how things just tend to work out. Um, uh, we, landed at JFK, uh, coming back from our honeymoon, I turned on my phone and I had a voicemail message from one of my colleagues, uh, in the investigative journalism program at, uh, Columbia. He had gotten a job at 60 minutes, uh, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I was thinking, wow, how did you do that? Yeah. Uh, and the message was, um, it was a producer at 60 minutes that said, uh, Coleman, you don't know me from anybody. I'm uh, this producer at 60 Minutes. And Kevin Lavelli, who is my friend and colleague, has uh, given me your master's project. And uh, I'm interested in speaking with you about uh, working on this story and, and hiring you to work at 60 Minutes. I thought, wow, never wow. thought about working in television. I was always uh, geared towards print. Uh, much like I, I didn't know anything about journalism before I started. I didn't know anything about broadcast television, but uh, my God, it was 60 minutes. Uh, yeah. And, and what I, was the, I, what was the master's project real quick? What, what was the master's project about that he had read? So the, um, the New York uh, police department uh, in up until actually a couple years ago, uh, you know, they obviously it's a huge, um, investigative system, a huge criminal justice system. They compile just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pieces of physical evidence from crime scenes all around the city, all throughout time. And they store them all in physical warehouses with paper vouchers. There's no computer system. And oh my understandably, a lot of evidence gets lost. 
Okay. Uh, that becomes important as DNA technology develops and yes. uh, people who had been convicted of crimes before there was DNA testing and had contested their innocence all along said, hey, there's this technology now. We want you to test it and you can tell uh, that I'm innocent. And that's yeah. great if you can find the evidence. It's wow. horrible if you can't find the evidence. And there were a number of cases in New York and really in a lot of places where rape kits, uh, evidence that could be tested, uh, just couldn't be found. And there were situations where for years it couldn't be found. And then lo and behold, somebody found this rape kit in the bottom of a barrel in the corner of a warehouse in Queens somewhere and somebody been sitting in jail for 12 years because they couldn't find them. Uh, so wow. my, my master's project, which, which portends the, story. um, did, that portends, didn't we, we, we've had that issue here in North Carolina with a backlog in the processing of rape kits that different politicians have said, Hey, we're going to try to, you know, blow through that. And there's been people trying to cast awareness on it. So you were doing a research project on that and wrote kind of that up and, and what all the implications of that would be. So investigative journalism on something, you know, super, super important, I guess. Right, right. It was, it was a fantastic story that when I got out of journalism school, didn't have an outlet. And then all of a sudden it had some interest from 60 Minutes and that was my foot in the door there. And much like my experience at Business Week, I started at the bottom at 37 years old as um, uh, an editorial assistant, uh, doing research collecting clips, pulling video and uh, different files for stories. And uh, I was fortunate to eventually work my way up and uh, after a couple of years, start producing my own stories. And it was just absolutely amazing working with these people that you know, had been at 60 Minutes for 40 years, 50 years. And they were the people that, you know, you talked about watching the Dukes of Hazard in my parents' living room there in yeah. Greensboro with, uh, I'm sure you remember the wood paneling that oh, yes, I remember that being in that had. room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I remember sitting on the floor in that same living room every Sunday night at seven o'clock uh, watching 60 Minutes with my parents because that's what was on in our household Sunday nights at seven o'clock. And then here I am, you know, fast forward a couple decades later, and I'm working with these same people that I used to watch wow. uh, on television. Um, Morley Safer, Steve Croft, Leslie Stahl, Bob Simon. Uh, it was a very surreal experience, but then you quickly have to learn these are colleagues now and they're depending on me. And yes. uh, there's a lot that I need to produce and get my house in order and just get beyond the, I can't believe I'm no longer on my living room floor. And now I'm in Steve Cross office and he is grilling me about yeah. why this story should hold together. And, um, uh, it's, it's just what an incredible experience. Well, were there similarities, uh, as you describe, especially moving up to being like a producer and putting together, assimilating a lot of information, sifting through it, putting it together for the purpose of telling a story are there some overlaps there maybe with work as a trial lawyer, similarities uh, and, and ways that you were able to draw upon your, your legal training to some degree to kind of assist with that process of telling a coherent story? Talk about kind of how those you know, fed each other or went together at all. Yeah, so there, there are a number of similarities uh, that helped me both with the transition from law to journalism, but then also my transition from journalism back into law. And one of them you've already hit on, and that is just taking 
a large complex body of information and making it understandable for someone who may not be an economist, uh, a trader on Wall Street, uh, or work in government or politics. You take this complex body of information and you make it understandable and accessible. Uh, and it's and that, that's what you do. That's what I do as a trial lawyer. Uh, you take a complex right. body of information and you present it to a jury. Uh, and that's the other part, I think, that translates very well between law and journalism, and that is storytelling. I never thought yes. about my practice as a trial lawyer, as a storyteller, before I worked at 60 Minutes, and I learned what good storytelling is from the best people who do that in the business. Uh, and that's what we're doing now at, 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 as trial lawyers. We're, you're telling the story of our client to the jury. And, you know, whereas before you produce this 12 minute story that goes on TV Sunday nights and you have a broadcast audience of 12, 15 million people, you know, now you put the story together, you put it together the same way. It has the same important elements, but you're talking to a jury of 12 people, not 12 million people, but 12 right there in front of you. And it's, it's the same concept, telling a good, compelling story. And then there's also a lot of basic fundamental similarities as well. Interviewing, uh, learning when somebody's yep. being truthful and honest with you, and perhaps sometimes when they're not. Uh, those are all skills that translate back and forth between law and journalism. Yeah, and I'm curious too. Um, I ask people a lot of this, having both based on my law, law school experience, but also having taught law school some. How much do you feel like law school as you experienced it? And you went to a great law school, but how did you feel you're prepared for those aspects of practicing the interviewing and the interacting with people and what that was going to be like? Uh, did you have clinical opportunities or things uh, that that you know set you up for that, or was that something you really had to felt like you fit, figured out more on the job? There were I had very good clinical opportunities and clinical experiences, but I'll tell you that I didn't really, I think, come into my own as a good interviewer until I was at 60 Minutes. And I was interviewing and talking to people all over the world with very diverse and extremely interesting uh, experiences. And it was just being in different situations, in different contexts, in different countries, uh, in different cultures and being able to converse and communicate and draw information out. And when I realized that when I came back, uh, I started practicing law that that uh, those fundamentals were, um, I guess I, th those skills were so much more developed when I came back and I appreciated them more uh, than I did before. I think as a young lawyer, you know, you're trying, you're trying to figure everything out. You're, you're just, you're, uncomfortable. You're the greenest, youngest person right. there. You think everybody's taking advantage of you. You're afraid of failing. You're afraid to take risk and you're afraid that you're going to look foolish and you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and, and, and that looking foolish is going to be really costly as well. Right, I think that's, right. that's definitely. Well, and I, I, um, I, I like that, uh, that. That's an interesting topic to me only because I felt like the same thing. Um, you know, I came into law school and I, I, I had all these categories, all these boxes of elements of, you know, if I have to prove things, then what can I, what kind of testimony can I get? What kind of evidence will work to prove these elements? And I think that really colored the way I conducted any interview, whether it's my own client or a deposition. 
Um, and uh, I, I only later learned that it was that's a little bit of a myopic way to focus on it. Uh, if you are doing an interview just to seek information, if you have you already know what information you want and you're kind of going after that, that's very different from you know being more inquisitive, curious, kind of listening to what the other person says. In fact, uh, I had a moment that was very uh, helpful in my practice. I read an article uh, that was actually published in the ABA journal. Uh, litigation section, I think, but it's written by a Charlotte lawyer, a lawyer named Woody Connett, a great guy who practices uh, here, still practicing with the Essex Richards firm. He wrote an article and it was called How to Take Better Depositions and Possibly Improve Your Marriage. And I, I was hooked by the title uh, and, and interested in that topic. And so I read it and it was basically, he was kind of you know proposing what, what seemed like a radical notion at the time. He said, if you're taking a deposition, listen to the witness and go with them kind of where they go, ask them follow-up questions. Don't just be hunkered over your sort of list of these things I'm going to ask. And I'm going to say, and didn't you this? And didn't you that? You know, um, a lot of the way we're taught to do cross-examination. Again, this is deposition, not in front of uh, the jury or anything. But when you're trying to learn what happened and you want, you know, you certainly there's, there's, there's topics you have to address. But he was saying, listen to what the witness says and kind of make it a better experience for them, put them at ease, and you'll be surprised what may happen. And so I started trying, and I was actually, uh, you'll appreciate this as a journal, I was trying a libel case uh, representing a lawyer who had been absolutely, you know, uh, libeled. Uh, false things had been said about her. She was an immigration lawyer, and one of the Spanish language papers here locally had printed an article that said, don't go to this woman. She'll take your money, do nothing, and you'll still get deported. And it said it all in Spanish, which was the absolute worst thing that could happen. Uh, it was not true. What they reported was not true. There's a whole lot of, uh, you and I could probably talk for hours another time about what, you know, what was bad about that. But the way the case started really shifting in our favor is when I interviewed the author of the piece, um, I had thought he was kind of a hack like everybody else and was in on how bad a job they did at the hatchet job of my client. But it turned out as I, you know, kind of tried this new interview approach and was listening to him and kind of going through, oh, tell me more about that. What about that? I learned he had serious journalistic chops. He had done all this great reporting and he knew how to do things right. And it turned out he had some thoughts and opinions about this place that he ended up working because he was kind of desperate for a job and he was kind of trying to make something work. And he gave me great stuff to kind of, you know, fry the paper without knowing he was doing it. Um, anyway, it's a long segue there, but to, to just illustrate, you know, the, the importance of listening um, in a different way. Uh, and there was, it was not mentioned at all in my law school training at all. And so when I taught law school, it was a lot more fun to, I taught a class on interviewing client counseling and I loved sharing with folks. Everybody's not going to say, Oh, you're a lawyer and you're here to talk to me. I will be forthcoming and glad to share with you everything that happened. It's usually the opposite. Um, right. So that, as I'm teaching young lawyers, that's something I stress to them is listen. It, it's hard taking a deposition to actually listen to the answer and ask a follow up question because you're so focused on what you want to ask. Yes. There's so much that you can miss. But the other thing that I tell young lawyers is stop being so much of a lawyer. Yes. Remember, you are you are a person and you're a human being before you were a lawyer. When you're talking to somebody, when you're talking to a client, even when you're taking a deposition, uh, doing a director cross examination, uh, 
picking a jury. You're a person. They're a person too. Yes. Just have a conversation with them. Don't talk like you're a lawyer. Don't write like you're a lawyer. That was yes. the hardest thing for me as I moved into journalism was to stop writing like a lawyer. And oh my God, I had a couple good editors that just hammered that out of me. And I try to help lawyers stop writing like lawyers uh, because it's you, not that interesting. And do you write differently now, having done that? Do you, even when you're writing a legal brief or something that's going to go to a court, you, even a complaint, do you write it sort of a little bit differently because of that? I, I write it very differently. I don't write it for me and how I want to write it. I, I write it for whoever's going to be reading it. Yeah. And I write it so that they keep on reading it. Not yes. because they have to read it, because they want to keep on reading it. Uh, if I write a brief that I know a judge is going to read, um, I think about, does this judge have a law clerk that's going to go through this and have all the time in the world to do all the research? Or yes. does this judge not have a law clerk? And is he or she going to be doing it on his own, doing the cases on, on his or her own? And what can I do to make it easier to read this brief and absorb it and hopefully agree with the position I'm taking? And there yes. is an art to that that, frankly, a lot of lawyers don't get uh, is they don't write yes. for their audience and write in a way that it's easy to read and that people want to read yes. and understand. It's easy to say it is very hard yes. to do. And well, and we're trained, you know, we're, we, when we when we're in law school, we're learning, we would go to legal writing or whatever they call the class. And we're trying to learn to think like a lawyer, write like a lawyer. And, and there is the emphasis on the, the bullet points and covering them all and have citations of authority. And yeah, after you practice, well, you know, nobody else writes like that. Um, and it can it can be very constraining. Um, and you can tell when you come across somebody who's who's you know, not slacking off and not failing to have citations to authority and the important things, but, but telling a story, crafting it. And one of the things that's huge is, is yes, knowing the audience, even the difference between a trial judge as the audience and an appellate judge. Those are different audiences with different uh, things that are on their mind, different questions, different concerns. And even tailoring it to that is something, you know, I don't remember ever being, in, you know, uh, uh, instructed about in in law school or even in my early years of practice. Uh, but I, I, one guy I like a lot, I don't know if you follow him, but uh, Brian Garner uh, writes a lot for the ABA Journal uh, and writes about that concise writing and making it more personable and, and relatable and less, you know, uh, lawyerly. And there's a push for doing that in contracts too. Um, just, just that humanity side of it though. Uh, it, it'll help it connect with the jury, uh, connect with the judge, whatever it is. So I want right. to, um, uh, you've mentioned obviously being back in practice. And so, uh, tell us about, you know, you're, you're at 60 minutes, you're producing, um, did it fulfill first and foremost, that, that sense of adventure that you wanted? You, you, uh, it sounds like you got to travel and go some really cool places, being involved in some, some amazing stories and you're at freaking 60 minutes. Okay. So it's not like you're, you know, uh, some tabloid put out in Queens or something. I mean, this is on a national scale. Why in the world did you step away from that and come back, of all things, to law? Right. And to anybody listening to your podcast in Queens, we're not picking on Queens. No, love, we're not picking on Queens. Queens. I just, it was the first borough I could right. think of. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I got every bit of adventure that I was looking for. Um, I, I reported stories and traveled to uh, every continent except Antarctica. Um, I did stories in jungles in Brazil, on mountaintops in Australia. Um, I was in Norway. I was in Afghanistan, uh, Africa. Uh, I was just in some incredible places that, you know, of course, I never would have been to but for this job. And it fulfilled everything that I was looking for. And I had just an exciting, exciting job. It was a wonderful 12 years. Uh, What I realized, though, is that just like the dream that carried me there, that uh, this dream that I needed to have more adventure, I wanted to have more adventure. I wanted to become a writer and became a journalist. I realized after 12 years that that my dream changed and Ah. different things were important to me. Um, I was married. Um, I had, we had a son. Uh, Our overall family happiness became much more important. And and that's how the dream changed. Uh, I loved what I was doing and uh, I love the people I was working with. And it was very exciting. Uh, But North Carolina also had a draw on me and and my family Uh, Mm -hmm. and my family's happiness uh, became more important than me seeking all of this excitement. I I had fulfilled that. I loved it, would have been happy to continue that. But my dream changed into more of a family fulfilling aspect. Um, Yeah. Every year in New York, uh, we, we were apartment owners for a while and we were apartment renters for a while. And when we were, when we were renting every year, when our lease came up, we'd say, well, what are we going to do? And we'd always talk about going back to North Carolina someday. And you know, then we'd re- renew the lease and have the same conversation the next year. Uh, but, you know, much like a lot of things I learned when I got shot, I realized, well, why are we talking about doing this someday? If North yeah. Carolina is where we want to be, our family is there, um, it, the way of life uh, that we're, we want to pursue now is there. Why, why are we talking about doing it someday? Let's just do it now. Uh, and so we did. You know, I, I left this fantastic job and everybody said, you're crazy. And I said, I've heard this before. <laughs> um, I'm pretty confident in this. And um, so we came back and... Uh, I had a conversation with one of my old partners, Hoyt Tessner, who is now leading the litigation department at James Scott Farron. And over a number of conversations, all of a sudden I realized that I was considering something that I had not thought once about in 12 years, not a single time in 12 years that I ever think about going back to practicing law and being a trial lawyer. Um, but Hoyt got me excited about that. Wow. Uh, and, um, uh, I came back and uh, fortunately what I had done is w- when I went on this journey, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. So I kept up with my bar dues. Uh, I took the first year I was out, I kept up with all my CLE hours until I got the form back and realized I'm, if I'm not in private practice and I'm not in the state, I don't need to do this. Right. Um, but I kept up my bar dues every year. And so when I was talking to Hoyt, I contacted state bar and said, I haven't been doing this for 12 years. What do I need to do to come back? And they looked at my license and said, well, it's still active. Come on back anytime you want. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Um, so what I realized, though, is that even though the state bar said, yep, you're ready. Come on back anytime you want. You know, I had been doing this for 12 years. I didn't know if I right. could do it, number one. 
um, I'm fortunate and grateful that Hoyt had uh, a lot of confidence in me and was perhaps a little bit smarter about this than I was. Um, but I, I got back and tried it. And, you know, so after I think I was away for 12 years, well, 13 years since I've left my practice, Wow. Uh, I was back as a trial lawyer and then 13 years and four weeks after I left, I was back in trial. Uh, wow. And I was fortunate and grateful that a lot of the things that I had learned that I hadn't thought about in a dozen years came back pretty quickly and pretty easily. Sure. What I learned after that trial was that just like all those trial skills that came back quickly and easily, so did all of the stress and strain mm. that being a trial lawyer, just being a lawyer, uh, puts on yourself. Uh, and so then I realized, well, I don't have I don't have this escape hatch that I used uh, 12, 13 years before. This is where I am. This is where my right. family you, is. You pulled the you pulled the ripcord. <laughs> you you pulled the ripcord before. You, you may not get that that opportunity right. again. You're, right. And and you're and you're you know setting the family on this trajectory. So. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, I had a chance to chat once and I, I remember I was asking about that. What did you learn sort of? I, I love the theme I'm hearing, though, of the, the dream changed um, and just recognize. I think that's great for younger lawyers to hear that the things that you want and you're after um, in your life and in your practice are one thing as you're just getting out of school, emerging, and that may shift. And some of it may be shifts on your own part. Some of it may be circumstantial shifts, uh, changes in family, like getting married, having a kid. For some people, it's uh, you know adopting or fostering or not being able to have kids and having to do other things. Um, family members, extended families that you have to care for. There can be external forces, but there you know that idea of of, of giving yourself that freedom uh, because you had to battle. I'm sure, like you said, at every move, somebody's saying you're crazy. Somebody's saying, "Why would you let go of this?" to go for that. And you had to have that sort of commitment to this is what we want, you know, that's possible for life now. So could you talk a little bit about, um, to underscore one other thing, what did you sort of pick up about, you know, about well-being, about kind of taking care of yourself? Uh, you, you got out of the legal rat race, you're, you're on this journalistic um, odyssey, and I'm sure it was, it, it, I know I had an experience of when I left uh, practicing law, and got to become a professor. I hadn't been much of a overworker or work workaholic before that because, you know, the work was fine. It was good. It paid the bills, but I was really into caring for my family and stuff. But when I got to be a law professor and teach full-time, it had my heart and I wanted every class to be amazing and every, you know, project to be, you know, substantial. And I, I actually struggled a lot more with overwork even after I took a pay cut and went to go do something, you know, um, totally different um, because my heart was in it. So what did you kind of learn about uh, how to, I don't use the word work-life balance because I don't like work and life being offset against each other, but work-life integration, what did you, you know, discover about how to do life the way you wanted to do it as a journalist, as a lawyer, and then especially how does it look different as you're entering back in? You said all the stresses come back. So what, what, what does it look like for you to, to, to care for yourself in a good way? But start with uh, where where did any changes come about as you're getting on the journalistic uh, rat race treadmill? So one of the primary reasons that I left my law practice was that I could never leave it. I never left the office. 
I would physically leave the office, but mentally my mind was always there at home, at night, through the night, uh, on vacations, on trips. My mind was always on what's coming up. What do I have to do? What am I missing? Uh, what is somebody going to get me on? Uh, I could and, never mentally leave the office. And, and even you told me a story about even watching a Tar Heel game one time. <laughs> Yeah, like a really yeah. good Tar Heel game, and you couldn't, you you weren't there and enjoying it. This is you know talk about a light bulb moment. Um, <laughs> I was uh, Angie, my uh, then girlfriend, soon to be fiance, now wife, and uh, mother of our son. We were watching um, ACC tournament, the championship game of the ACC tournament, and Carolina was playing. I can't remember who they were playing, um, and you'll see why in a, in a moment. We're sitting uh, in, in our living room, in my living room uh, in Raleigh, watching the game. It's just the two of us. And when the game's over, she turns to me and says, or as she asked me, where have you been? And I look at her and I'm like, what are you talking about? You've been sitting right here. We've been watching the game together. She looks at me and she says, who won? And I look at her <laughs> and I pause and think, and I don't know. We sat oh my there God. watching the whole game, uh, but my mind had not been there. It was uh, back when the ACC championship was on Sunday afternoons, and my yep. mind was on everything that was coming up that week. Uh, yep. And it was just, it, it was a bad moment, but a very good realization that this is what's going on, and it's just consuming me. And that's... That's one of the reasons why I left is because I was I was consumed by my career and I was single yeah. at the time and it was easy to allow it to be consuming. Sure. Uh, one of the things I realized when I was after I'd been at 60 Minutes for a number of years is as exciting as that was and as much as I loved the work I was doing and loved thinking about it, when I left the office or left a producing trip. I left the work behind and I was able wow. to enjoy the time with my family. And I, I, I had, I remember moments in places where I was in Central Park thinking, oh, this is what it's like. I'm not at work anymore. And this is what it's like to be with my family and enjoy my family and be present where I am. I didn't have that before. So when I came yeah. back and all that stress started coming back and you're waking up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things you have to do. Once I came back, I realized I need to solve this problem. Um, I, as I said, I yeah. don't have this escape hatch anymore. Don't feel like I, that, that, that's a one trick pony. Uh, you can only use it one time. Right. Um, so I had to figure out a way to, to fix that problem. And I, there are a number of things that I did. One of the things that I did is I, I didn't realize I was doing this, but eventually I realized I was drawing on a lot of experiences that I had uh, with people that I interacted with and interviewed when I was at 60 Minutes and a lot of experiences that they had and things that I had learned from them about how to deal with adversity and deal with stress. And then there were also more, a couple of things that I did just to help my well-being and mental health. Um, I took care of myself better. I mean, I've always um, been very active and uh, run marathons, ultra marathons and triathlons, but took care of myself, not only physically, but mentally as well. Um, I started what did that look like, what are some examples? So um, I, I say this with full acknowledgement that my 30 year old self is getting ready to roll his eyes 
at this, but uh, <laughs> I, I started practicing mindfulness and meditation and just spending a little bit of time every day learning how to focus and learning how yeah. to relax. Um, and uh, again, with the 30-year-old Coleman eye roll, uh, that has helped and has made a huge difference. I sleep better. I focus better. My mental health yeah. is better. My stress level is better. Uh, and everything is much more manageable. Uh, it's like many things. It's a practice and you work at it. Uh, but I found that taking care of my mind is as important as taking care of my body. Uh, other things that have helped have just been perspective and experience. And I'll tell you one of the greatest lessons I think that I learned when I was away uh, is the importance of failure and being willing to Ooh, take risks yeah. and not being afraid to fail. Knowing that you will, and that's okay, but learning from it. And I think uh, yes. this is a problem that a number of the, many young lawyers experience. I certainly had it that I was, yes. I was afraid of failing and it froze me and I didn't Definitely. take risks. Yes. I didn't expand. I didn't learn things because I was afraid to fail. I stayed in my lane and stayed in my box and ticked off my lists and, you know, just kind of got by. I, you know, I was doing well and, and, and people were praising my work, but I wasn't learning and I wasn't growing. And once I learned the importance of being comfortable with failure and taking those risks, uh, a lot of things became much more comfortable. Uh, stress was less and I learned more and, and, and I've grown more. Uh, and it's, it's just, yeah, it's this crazy lesson about failure and that, that that's okay. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, yes, it, well, it's, it's super hard for, I think part of it is, you know, you've got to be pretty smart and academically driven to get into and go to law school. And, and so you're used to succeeding and you got there by, you know, making the good grades and, and, and doing everything you're supposed to. And, and I think we as a profession put a lot of pressure on, you know, especially in, in litigation and trial work, what we do the adversary process. I mean, you have, you know, your client comes to you and they're like, um, I'd like you to half-ass this and just kind of run some time out. No, they want you to win. And literally winning is the goal. You have to compete. You have to be great. And I think that can turn into a lot of pressure. Um, I know that from working in a couple of different environments. I was in one law firm where I, in looking back when I was out of it later, there was a, a fear just was kind of coloring everything of, of everything was sort of something to be really worried and really fearful and concerned about. Um, and I ended up working at uh, the, the law firm I ended up being at for 11 years where they had a different mindset. They're like, Oh, you messed up. Well, that doesn't surprise us because we do too. And I could feel myself just relax. Like, Oh, okay. Like, Oh, I'm not going to be the first person to fail or lose emotion or anything like that. And, and there's just this different calm that sort of sets in. Um, I, quick story. I, I took some kayak lessons uh, back a year ago and I had this nice, uh, I was so thrilled that they gave me a guide. My, my instructor trainer was not some young buck, you know, who was going to tell me at 50 what to do. He was, he's had some years on him, knew his stuff. And he said, you know, you got to get ready to swim. Basically a swim is whenever you exit the kayak in, in a way other than you plans to do so. <laughs> and he said, we have a saying 
in uh, you know the kayaking field, and it's everybody is between swims, no matter how good or or new you are at it. Everybody's between swims, even the best you know world class kayaker, uh, and that was helpful. That you know put my mind in. I'm like I can work with that um, because you know as humans we're going to mess things up. We don't want it to be catastrophic, um, certainly, and it's not an excuse. I think lawyers we're fearful. We're so trained to be risk averse and to be spotting the risks and the consequences. But yeah, that's a that's a, a, a whole different mindset uh, to be comfortable with trying something. Uh, it took me a long time to get there, probably until I was in my 30s, probably through doing educational programs, really. Just oh, let's try something and some things work and some things don't. But when they work, it's kind of like, oh, it's kind of cool. And I'm glad I took the risk instead of listening to the people who said, that's crazy. Nobody will do it. Yeah, I, I think it's along with that, it's important to understand the risk that is there be willing to take sure. it and, and control sure. what you can control, but realize you're just, you're stepping out there and, you know, you, you might fail. You need to take this risk, uh, control what you can control. And if you do fail, you need to own it, but you need to learn from it. If you don't yes. learn from it, then you, it, you're not gaining anything and you're just, you're just going to do it again. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Just Failure can having, be instructive. Right. Right. Having that realization has has helped me immensely. And I didn't have that as a young lawyer. What um, uh, it sounds like, too, you all have a, a team system. I mean, it's a law firm. I don't know how many lawyers and staff and all you have, but there, it sounds like there's also a sense you're you're not trying to do this alone. You guys are taking on pretty substantial, high volume, high, high, uh, you know, uh, value cases, people's lives are impacted by the results. That's a lot of weight to bear, but you're not doing it just as, you know, it's the Coleman show. You have to get it all done. Much like at 60 minutes, you're part of a team, but you've got, you know, people around you that are helping do that. Is that uh, an aspect? Am I capturing that right as well? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that, that helps manage the stress and, and it helps the client and helps, uh, achieve good results uh, in our cases. And it was the same way at 60 Minutes. When I was a producer there, you're working with a camera crew, an audio crew, an editor, and then you've got executive editors uh, uh, looking at your, your finished product. So you're kind of in charge of carrying the story from cradle to grave from the story idea all the way to getting it on TV. But it's a team approach and you've got colleagues along the way helping you out. And it's the same thing uh, in our practice at, at, at Farron. Um, we work, each case is different, but I have a, a team that I work with and uh, th- there's a lot of collegiality and interaction and um, talking about ideas and talking about the risks. This is what I think we ought to do here. The, the, this is where the risk is. And, a lot of lawyers are smarter than me and have different ideas than me, and they might have more experience, they might have less experience, but it all comes together and and, and works really well. Whereas before, I was with a big firm, but there were times, and I imposed this on myself, I think, that I felt like it, it was me against the world. And uh, I was fearful of what I didn't know, and I was fearful of failing, and sometimes I was fearful of asking the questions that I needed to ask. Um, you know, so... The younger lawyers that I being work judged with. for asking those right. questions. Right. Sometimes. Being yeah. judged. That's exactly right. And so the younger lawyers that I work with now, I uh, encourage them to not to have that fear. Don't have a fear of being judged. Don't fear of don't be afraid of failing. Don't be afraid of risk. Let's talk about it. Let's manage it. But 
there's a lot of risk in everything that we do and we just have to come to terms with it and, and learn from it. And you can. Well, and that's, and that's the kind of thing too. You have to not just pronounce that and say, you know, you can come to me with anything, but then it's, it's, you know, putting your, uh, your behavior right behind that when they do come to you and you have maybe that curiosity and you listen, okay, not, Oh no, you did this. You're going to cost us a bunch of money, you know, not putting off that vibe, but putting off the vibe of, I'm so glad you came because we can deal with this now and we'll find a way we're in it together. That changes the whole character of the relationship and their willingness to come. Cause they might come back again and say, well, I also messed this up. Okay. Good to know. Uh, what you don't want is people feeling like they have to fix things themselves, feeling like they can't say they messed up because there'll be hell to pay. And it's counterintuitive for a lot of people. There are people who are like, you know, make sure people know there are consequences for whatever. No, no, no. You don't want to create that culture of fear, I don't think, uh, having worked in, in both, a culture of fear and more a culture of, you know, we're human, we'll get through this together. It, it makes all the difference in the world, um, and, it's, and it's, it's not easy. Um, this is helpful even for me just as a, I'm a solo practitioner. I've only got one lawyer in my firm now, but I've got to have, you know, I've realized I've got to have staff. I've got to have other people, you know, to help carry this load or else I'm toast. Um, and that's just kind of the way, you know, I operate. Um, so, um, this has all been super helpful. I want to be mindful of your time, mindful of our time. I did want to mention, uh, uh, come circle back around to one thing we talked about at the beginning, you and I reconnected because we're working with a, a committee of the North Carolina Bar Association called the Professional Vitality Committee. Can you tell, uh, our listeners, what is the PVC? And what can we look forward to maybe coming up uh, from the PVC, uh, hopefully later this fall in 2021? Yeah, so the Professional Vitality Committee is, uh, is number one. It's a mouthful. Uh, the way I explained it to my wife is it's a committee of lawyers uh, trying to help other lawyers be happy in what they do and avoid some of the pitfalls that are very easy to uh, fall into as you're practicing law. Um, it is uh, a fantastic uh, group of uh, lawyers. Uh, it's a North Carolina Bar Association committee. Uh, last year, headed by Erna Womble. This year, Jamie Dean has taken over. Uh, one of the things that we're working on for this year is putting together a uh, continuing legal education uh, seminar uh, it's actually going to deal with a lot of the things, Chris, that you and I have talked about uh, on this uh, this podcast. Uh, some of the experience that I that I've had, and some of the things that I've learned, and and how lawyers can help themselves be better lawyers and be happier lawyers, but more than that, just happier people. Uh, managing stress, managing the adversity, everything that comes with everything that we do, whether or not you're a trial lawyer, transactional lawyer, uh, what have you, there, there's a lot of commonality and uh, some of the, the, the stress that is that we all impose upon ourselves. I mean, we're all type A type people. Um, and if you're like me, you impose a lot of that on yourself. So one of the things that, that our committee is doing is just helping lawyers sort through that. You know, it's not necessarily a substance abuse kind of thing. It's just, it's, I mean, I, I personally think about it as more mental well-being and being happy in what yes. you're doing and both in your career and in life. And, you know, you talked about 
you know, the work-life balance and how, you know, you don't like using that because it, it avoids, it implies one takes from the other. It, the way I think about it is I, I'm constantly searching for it, but I know that I will never get it. But it's that journey yeah. and that search that uh, keeps me on um, a good, healthy path, I think. Well, and instead of just, because uh, the opposite of thinking about it and trying to at least consciously gauge how they're working together and all is, is default mode is just sort of falling into step with what else, whatever you see other people doing or what you have to do to survive and just kind of get to the next day. And before you know it, 365 next days have passed and you're still kind of stuck in the same places. If we don't take that pause and assess just to say, you know, am I getting out of my legal career what I want? Um, I don't know very many people um, our age who are still practicing the same place that they started. Um, I don't know many people. Uh, I, I take that back. I'm going to have uh, a guy you may have met, a Womble lawyer is going to be uh, one of my next podcast guests, Mark Enriquez in the Charlotte office, who's a fantastic guy. And part of the reason I'm having him on is because he's spent almost 30 years in practice with one firm, a big law firm. And that's a very fascinating and unique, interesting story. He's such an interesting guy. Uh, and, and that's what we love on this on this podcast. Thriving looks different, all different kinds of different for all different kinds of people. And, and, and in, as your story shows, thriving looks different at different life phases. And if we can hear that and go, that is OK. And, and you don't have to have this linear rise that it neatly fits into a Martindale Hubble, you know, a bio format or LinkedIn bio format. Uh, there's freedom in that. There's rest in that and opportunities to you know, see what kinds of things we can do. Uh, and, and what do you know, in our case, it ends up, we're going to get to have fun with this, uh, a program coming up, uh, and, and see hopefully what some more, uh, great things the PVC can do. It's, uh, I'm going to have Jamie Dean actually is one of my, uh, I've already told him, I want him on this podcast cause he's got a fascinating story, uh, and have done, has done some great things in law, but also the kinds of things he's, he's dealt with are just, uh, you know, you take your hat off to. Yeah, I agreed wholeheartedly. And I, I didn't know that he was going to be on your podcast, but I will look for that because that is a story I am very interested in hearing. Yes, I've been getting to know him through a collaborative law, collaborative law model that we're trying to adopt, take it from family law for uh, into the civil uh, case realm. And that's a part of the decision a lot of people make in pursuing that is, is based on quality of life and based on, you know, what do I want out of practice and do I want to keep arguing? Good news, lawyers out there. If you are somebody who's found yourself, you know, this arguing thing, this this bat battling mindset that we have in litigation, if that doesn't really resonate with you anymore, or you don't want to do that, there's things within law you can still do. And 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 lots of us are on journeys of sort of discovering that. Uh, and it's it's refreshing. Uh, I, I've flirted with uh, different aspects, different possibilities of leaving law altogether or not having a practice. And I keep coming back for a variety of reasons, some of them choice and some of them being, you know, kind of circumstantial and what, what, what things are going on. Uh, but what I love is there's always within law, we're, we're really blessed and fortunate. There are ways to reinvent ourselves. There are ways to do things differently that can make the ingredients come together in a better way. And your story, Coleman, is, is fantastic for that. Uh, so thank you for your time here. Thanks for uh, sharing that with us. And I look forward to uh, keeping up with you and, um, I'm not going to run any ultra marathons with you. I will tell you that. But if uh, maybe we'll kick a soccer ball around again sometime. All right. That sounds good, Chris. Thanks for having right. me on. Thanks so much. And that's our uh, broadcast for this week. Slate.